Welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And if you feel like you need that extra cherry on top to reward yourself for your time with the journal feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. Details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the charming Aaron Lacey and Clay Smith. So without further ado, we'll get on to the first article from this week, which was titled The Prognostic Value of Syncope on Mortality in Patients with Pulmonary Embolism, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. The PSIT trial from back in 2016 raised the question about the relationship between pulmonary embolism and syncope, having us worry that as many as one in six patients admitted for syncope could have a PE. Since then, though, we figured out that the number is not nearly as impressive as that. But that leaves us wondering, what does syncope and the context of PE mean for our patients? Are we looking at an unfortunate quirk or a harbinger of bad outcomes? To get to the bottom of this, this article was a meta-analysis of 20 studies to pool together the data from 9,500 patients. And they found that when a patient had syncope associated with PE, that their odds of short-term mortality increased by 82%. More so, the odds of hemodynamic instability was also much higher, with an odds ratio of 4.36. That's not a shocker, though, since it's not really a surprise, and there's got to be something giving them this syncopal episode. So the authors point out that this is why it's important to use the patient's hemodynamic status to risk stratify patients who present with PE and syncope. Altogether, in a spoonful, PE with syncope is associated with increased risk of short-term mortality, which is explained by the increase in hemodynamic instability in these patients. Next, onto the second article titled, Why COVID-19 Silent Hypoxemia is Baffling to Physicians out of the American Journal of Respirology and Critical Care Medicine. I'm really happy that we're covering this article, and you'll want to listen really closely so that you'll sound really sharp the next time you're talking to your colleagues about COVID-19 patients. If you've been following much talk about COVID-19, or if you've seen a number of them yourself, then you've definitely heard of the term a happy hypoxemic patient. It's been thrown around quite a bit so-called because of severe hypoxemia silently flying under the radar in patients in no apparent distress. The anecdote constantly quoted are patients with saturations incompatible with life, as we would think, and yet they sit there on their cell phones in no apparent distress quite calmly. These authors break it down and give us a few reasons why this might be happening. First thing to know is that hypoxemia alone is not a strong trigger to increase your minute ventilation. Your PaO2 actually has to drop below 60 before your ventilatory drive will shoot up. On the other hand, a much stronger driver of minute ventilation is your PCO2. Since severe hypoxia will only trigger an effective response when PCO2 rises above 39 millimeters of mercury. No two patients are the same though and individual sensitivity to O2 and CO2 levels will differ. 
Important modifiers are increasing age and diabetes, both of which will decrease the responsiveness of your respiratory drive in response to hypoxia. What doesn't help either, though, is that pulse oximetry is notoriously inaccurate below 80%, which normally is fine since we'd rather not have our patients down that far anyways. But in these cases, that's not always possible. Oxygen saturation is also less accurate in critically ill patients and black patients, so keep that in mind. So these patients are maintained on quite low oxygen levels, and we know that low oxygen is relatively unhealthy in the long term, and very low oxygen is obviously deadly in the very short term. But we as humans can actually tolerate fairly low oxygen levels for quite a while without feeling too bad. If any of you haven't had the pleasure of checking your oxygen saturation at high altitudes, then you might be shocked to see just how low it can get without you feeling any real dyspnea. Last year, I had the pleasure to see a friend of mine saturating in the low 70s on a trip to Kilimanjaro, and he didn't appear to report any problems whatsoever. He was feeling just fine. Yet another factor is fever, which you'd expect to see in a COVID patient, let's be honest. And this will shift the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the right, meaning that you'll have a lower saturation for the same PO2. And the oxygen sensors in your carotid body, if you remember, only sense PO2. Lastly, the authors remind us that hypoxemia must be defined in relation to the FiO2 delivered to your patients. A patient saturating at 92% but is on an FiO2 of 100 may well be considered hypoxemic. Be careful with this though because it's hard to be certain exactly what FiO2 your patient is really receiving, unless they're intubated of course. <sighs> Alright, so if we wrap all of that together into one spoonful, we'll see that science prevails yet again. Silent hypoxemia isn't magic, and in fact it can be explained away with some pulmonary pathophysiology. With that, we move on to the third article titled The Effects of High-Dose 24-Hour Infusion of Transoxemic Acid on Death and Thromboembolic Events in Patients with Acute Gastrointestinal Bleeding, HALT IT, an international randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial out of The Lancet. So we've seen transoxemic acid's ability to reduce mortality after a traumatic hemorrhage, which is typically obviously a bleed due to a mechanical source. But might it work as well in a GI bleed, something that may have more of a medical nature to it? This was a large, multi-center, randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial of almost 12,000 patients with upper or lower GI bleeding comparing TXA to placebo or usual care. For the primary outcome of mortality at 5 days, there was no difference. Both groups had a 4% mortality. And not only did it not help, it actually seemed to hurt. There's no increased risk for arterial thrombotic events, but nearly double the risk for venous thromboembolism in the TXA group at 0.8% versus 0.4% in the placebo arm. So in a spoonful, TXA did not reduce mortality within five days in patients with upper or lower GI bleeding, but it did increase the risk of venous thromboembolism. And next, we'll move on to the fourth article, which will be titled Ketamine Use for Tracheal Intubation in Critically Ill Children is Associated with the Lower Occurrence of Adverse Hemodynamic Events out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. That's right, guys. You heard it right. Another ketamine paper. And you're in luck. It's positive, so we've just one more excuse to reach for it. 
So even when tracheal intubation is indicated in children, there's still a significant risk associated with induction, sedation, and positive pressure ventilation. One way to help with said risks may be the use of ketamine. Through its sympathomimetic effects and the inhibition of norepinephrine reuptake, it's actually toted to counteract some of the risk of intubation causing hypotension in adult patients. What we'd like to know from this study is whether or not this holds true in critically ill pediatric populations as well. This study was a retrospective review of the near trial data of almost 12,000 children who underwent intubation. The primary outcome for this study was the rate of adverse hemodynamic events during tracheal intubation, and they found them to have occurred 5.5% of the time, the most common being hypotension in more than half of cases. From this population, 32% of intubations were done with ketamine, and after adjustments, the ketamine was found to have a decreased risk of adverse hemodynamic events with an odds ratio of 0.74. And interestingly, on top of that, the odds of adverse hemodynamic events was lower as the induction dose of ketamine was increased. The lower ranges of 0.88 mg per kg to higher doses of 3.2 mg per kg. Now, altogether in a spoonful, just as ketamine is now a popular adult induction agent, perhaps children will soon follow suit, since this study shows that the risk of adverse hemodynamic events was lower in children induced with ketamine compared with other agents. And finally, the last article titled BET2, Video Laryngoscopy for Patients Requiring Endotracheal Intubation in the Emergency Department, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. We talked about this on the journal feed just a few weeks ago, that there is mounting evidence to favor video laryngoscopy over direct laryngoscopy in the emergency department to improve our first-pass success. So while first-pass success is a good measure, and it's thought to reduce other complications such as time to intubation and esophageal intubations, what about some more patient-oriented outcomes? For this study, four articles were identified as the highest level of evidence available and were reviewed to answer the question of whether or not video versus direct laryngoscopy was associated with higher first-pass success rates as well as better clinical outcomes. And they did indeed find that video laryngoscopy was associated with higher first-pass success rates and fewer esophageal intubations, but it did not show a reduction in clinically relevant outcomes such as hypoxia, cardiac arrest, or in-hospital mortality. So when you take these results into account with other data that video laryngoscopy is really a very little benefit over direct in the hands of a seasoned professional, and so this leads to the author's best evidence topic report that video laryngoscopy may improve first-pass success rates. But if you're already old hat at direct laryngoscopy, then you should use whatever technique works best for you at the time. In a spoonful, again, a review demonstrates that video laryngoscopy improves first-pass success rates in ED intubations, but there's not strong evidence to show that this translates into reduced rates of hypoxia or mortality. And that wraps up all of our articles, so we'll do a rapid review of what we've covered today. First, syncope in the context of PE is a bad sign. These patients are likely to have hemodynamic instability, and their risk of short-term mortality is actually increased by 82%. Next, as just another way that COVID has made a name for itself, it has done so with the presentation of the happy hypoxemic patients. And this can be largely explained by physiology and your body's tendency to increase respiratory drive more by the influence of CO2 than of O2. And since these people's lungs are largely still quite compliant, they're well ventilated, just poorly oxygenated. 
after that, from the third article, there are things that help with GI bleeds. TXA is not one of them. Then, in critically ill children undergoing tracheal intubation, ketamine as an induction agent was associated with fewer hemodynamic adverse events when compared with other induction agents. And lastly, video laryngoscopy is still the reigning champ of ED intubation first-pass success, but it's not clear that this translates well to patient benefit, so keep trusting your judgment for what's best for the patient in front of you. And that wraps it up for this week. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your emails. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.